This program is brought to you by SoundsTrue.com. For those seeking genuine transformation, SoundsTrue.com is your trusted partner on the spiritual journey, offering diverse, in-depth, and life-changing wisdom. Many voices, one journey. SoundsTrue.com. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today, I speak with Gangaji. Gangaji is an American-born spiritual teacher dedicated to sharing the path of freedom through simple and direct self-inquiry. 2010 marks her 20th year of teaching as Gangaji continues traveling the world, speaking to people with whom she shares her direct experience of the essential message she received from her guru Papaji, on the banks of the Ganges in 1990. She is the author of the Sounds True book, The Diamond in Your Pocket, Discovering Your True Radiance. I spoke with Gangaji about what she learned while going through quite a difficult time in her life. The challenge, as well, of working with difficult emotions like fear, anger, and jealousy. The power of humiliation and the endless nature of spiritual awakening. Welcome, Gangaji. Oh, thank you. I'm really happy to be here, Tammy. Gangaji will be offering a three-part online series with Sounds True called Facing Everything, Meeting Your Life Without Resistance, and that begins on March 9th. And I think many Sounds True listeners know that in your own life, in the past five or so years, you've faced a lot of things, things that uh, maybe people might think that somebody who has had a great spiritual awakening in their life wouldn't have to face. And, you know, what I mean by that, I mean, I think you know, is that it uh, became public that there were difficulties with your husband, Eli, and that he had had an extramarital affair with a student, and all of the complexities that go with that in terms of your long-term marriage. And I'm curious if, to begin, you can tell us a little bit about what you learned about facing everything from this experience. No, I learned a lot. (laughs) Because uh, until this happened, things had been relatively smooth. I mean, I am a human being, so there are ups and downs, and I think we all have to face small things that are unpleasant to us, and in different ways, whether with our body or just our environment or politics or whatever, but this was deeply personal, and I've been in this marriage for over 30 years now, and um, it was quite a shock to me to find out that my husband was deeply in love with another person and had been for three years, and it was a shock, and it was really a good shock, although it felt horrible at the time and I would have given anything to not have it and I'm a human being and I went through what we go through as humans shock is a kind of paralysis state and then emotions arise and I had all the emotions I'm I'm an emotional being and I was furious and angry and I left my husband and jealous and hurt and just couldn't believe it had happened and 
and also recognize that it had happened and that, that there was choice in that and that I could actually open to all of those feelings and and recognize that in the midst of all that there was this untouched love for my husband, <laughs> for the other woman, for myself, and just love for love and, and that love was was really untouched and yet it wasn't separate from the emotions so it wasn't that the love took precedence but it was there as silent awareness it was a the presence and we made it through it um we did split up and then we reconciled and then a year later there was a public outcry and a scandal and and so there was another level of facing everything that that had been deeply personal and then this other was profoundly public and um, lots of negativity coming my way but you know for years i've been saying to people you know if you accept the negative as you accept the positive that it's just energy coming towards you then you recognize what's untouched and this was a good testing ground for me i had to see <laughs> How true is that? And I discovered it's completely true. It was a very unpleasant time, but it, it doesn't touch the truth of oneself. And from that came this phrase, facing everything. We actually offered a group, a, a weekend or a five-day, with that title, Facing Everything, and the realization that since we are human beings, and we, are, we want to be awake human beings, really the only choice is to face everything. Otherwise, we, we live in little bubbles, and some are pleasant, and some people live in very unpleasant bubbles. But to face everything is to, is to be willing to acknowledge that whatever arises can be met, no matter what we tell ourselves about what arises, no matter how much we like it or dislike it, it can be met. And when I use the word meet or met, it's, uh, I mean, when we meet someone, we really are something, some emotion, some person, some state. We have to leave behind all definitions of what we think that person or state or emotion is and simply uh, meet it as energy. And it's uh, a fire then, and it actually deepens. And so I can say now, on the other side of this, it was, that was three years ago, well, four years ago when I discovered the affair. Our marriage is deeper and sweeter than ever. And I, I am, wouldn't say my skin is thicker. It's actually more transparent. And I, I still have the capacity for a heartbreak. But there's also a deeper recognition of um, the presence of, of love and silence that really can handle anything. And is, is really my invitation to anyone who's interested in this series, that that's what we will be dealing with ruthlessly and eventually, effortlessly, meeting what arises in one's life. So I, I say I bring to that my own experience of it. It's not just a theory. <laughs> I, I've, had to, I've been through the test of fire with this one. It certainly sounds that way. So l let's take the example of meeting... Anger. I mean, the anger that anyone would would feel in a situation like this. Mm -hmm. How do you actually meet anger? I mean, anger takes us over. We're you know we go off on our our rants and stuff. What does it mean to meet it? Well, I definitely felt 
very angry. So first of all, feeling it and uh, anger is such a powerful emotion that it it just empties the mind of any thoughts of this should be here or this shouldn't be here. <laughs> it was just just really raw, naked anger. And I, you know, I did my share of yelling and screaming and saying this shouldn't be and. And then the anger is spent, because even though anger is the most powerful, perhaps, of the emotions or of the outward-going emotions, it's also superficial, because under that anger was this, this dis- despair that, that I had been living with someone that I, I thought I knew profoundly that it seemed I didn't know, that I had been living a lie. And so there was a deep despair. and. In a way, the choice then was, do I stay in this anger, or do I actually open to meet what's under the anger? And I just had enough experience to know to open to the despair and the shock of that. And really, the beautiful part of the shock of it is the humbling of it, that that it doesn't matter how enlightened you are, how many experiences of awakening you've had. You're, we're subject to heartbreak, and that's not a bad thing because it humbles the mind in whatever the latest incarnation of self-definition may be. And so I was humbled by this despair. And I also knew that I had a choice with despair. I could indulge it and dramatize it, or I could just really open to it. And in opening to despair without following the the tendencies of my mind, which absolutely did arise to to write out a, a dramatic scenario of how this shouldn't have happened to me and how bad they are for doing this to me, to not follow that, just to return to my own pain, then that pain itself is not the enemy. It is, it's just an animal pain of hurt. And when that hurt is met without the uh, addition of the dialogue or the story of what caused it, even though that dialogue may be legitimate and may need to be addressed, but in that moment just to open to the raw, naked hurt, then there is a discovery of of what's unhurt, of uh, that in the core of the wound there is perfect wholeness, as as I have called it a moment ago, that just the love was untouched, and from that space then, I could actually speak to my husband, I could actually speak to this other woman and say, how did this happen? You know, how, what part did I play in this? And as a human being, start to unravel how this could have all come about, to take responsibility. But first I had to take responsibility for my own reaction, my own emotions, and then a response, a true response could come. You've mentioned a couple times that there's choices, that you saw that there were choices you could make at different Mm -hmm. points. And I'm curious about that, that emergence of a choice point, if you could describe that more. Well, I haven't always been aware of choice in my life, of course. There were just, uh, over the course of my spiritual search, there were certain pivotal moments where I recognized I was choosing to suffer. And then really when I met Papaji, my teacher, my guru, and he said, stop. At first I didn't know what he meant, and I could have a whole 
internal conversation about how it's impossible to stop. But he was so clear in his just saying, stop, choose to be free, that I stopped telling my story about what I could choose and what I couldn't choose. And so I had experience of choice. And then when I got pushed, as life will push us all in one way or the other, either in our relationships or just in the very fact of the ending of life, because really it's death that we're always shocked about and death that we're avoiding and death that makes us angry and death that makes us despairing. But Papaji had invited me to face death. And so I had actually opened or met, if we're using the word to meet, met. I had met my own death, and so I recognized that I had this choice to open. Before that, I would have said there was no choice, just the anger or the jealousy or the despair would just have to play itself out. And I had lived a life, much of my life, actually, as an emotional person then, as an emotional type in emotionality and feeling that it was choiceless and I would have defended the choicelessness of it and that was my identity but in meeting my teacher he had actually just just suggested that I inquire into stopping and opening and it, I found it is it's here that opportunity is here so when these very strong emotions would appear they that choice was not present in in saying, well, now this emotion won't appear. It was choiceless when they appeared because things were triggered in my subconscious or my habits or my fixation. But just, for me anyway, it wasn't choiceless. They appeared. But at that moment then, I knew from my own past experience that I could just stop talking to myself about how wrong I had been and that was actually easier than meeting the pain it seemed so it was a hard choice or a ruthless choice but in the willingness to make that choice then that's what i mean when i say open so it's not choosing what arises it's choosing what you do with that so when something difficult is happening and an emotion's arising that seems like it's sweeping us away mm. and we're hooked into the thinking, 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 the story, you know, I'm going to kill him, whatever, or, you know, I'm so afraid, mm -hmm. over and over and over. How do we break that? How do we break, you know, that, that sort of record player in our mind that's just going over and over, and we're in the feeling? Well, that's the essential question. I think the first thing is you have to be willing to um, hear yourself, or to overhear yourself. You have to be willing to to at least recognize, my God, I'm having the same conversation with myself that I've had a hundred times today about how horrible it is, or he is, or they are. And so, and, and that there's some juice from that conversation. There's even some sense of power in that conversation mm -hmm. because it generates this very strong emotion, anger. There's no sense of power in despair. And we would often rather feel uh, angry for the sense of power it gives us than the despair. So in overhearing myself, and you know, I, I'm not saying that immediately I would say, oh, there's choice. I wouldn't yell or scream and then I would hear myself. I'm, this is 
so familiar. And it was not just familiar from this particular horror that happened in my life, but it was familiar from from all I can remember of my life, of what I'd said to my mother, what I'd said to, you know, other lovers, what I'd said to the world, what I'd said to my government when it had betrayed me. So it was this righteous anger. And um, the charge then was willing, the willingness to lie down and just feel that, not to even try to change the anger, but just to feel it without the dialogue. And that's, that is the choice. And the how-to is first, is to first recognize there is a dialogue. And it's, it's not a creative dialogue. It's the same old dialogue. So it's really keeping one um, stirred up without resolution appearing. And that's major. You know, once you overhear yourself, then then there's a possibility. That in itself is humbling. Okay, so I hear myself. Mm-hmm. I'm sick of it. I'm humbled. <laughs> I'm, I'm with you all the way there. I lie down. I'm still with you. Mm-hmm. I lie down and I'm still hearing myself and I'm more humbled. But what breaks that? So... If there's no notion of it being broken, you know, you're not trying to get to the other side of it. If you're lying down so that you can get finished with it, that's not really meeting it. That's actually making some kind of subtle war against it. So you're, you're sick of the being sick. But the, what I'm suggesting is that there's a possibility to just be sick to just lie down and die to a future and die to the dialogue of the past. And in that, then the meeting is just here. And then the, the outcome is a discovery rather than uh, a decision. This will be the outcome. I will lie down. I will meet this. And I will be done with it. It's more, I will lie down. I will meet this. And I will discover what is here. Maybe it's more anger, maybe it's more despair, more fear. But then whatever is here is an opportunity then to discover what is this, what is here. When we are attached to these outcomes, I'll get rid of this, or this will never happen again, or I'll get to peace and love, then um, we're being led by our thoughts then, rather than letting the thoughts follow the direct discovery. And that's really the whole the whole point of this series is that we can have profound understandings, but if if those understandings then start to direct our lives, then they actually limit our lives. The the capacity to discover then uh, makes way for even more profound understanding. But then it's not the understanding that's leading; it's the capacity to discover. So we don't know what would happen, say, when you you lie down, you're having this conversation, you're sick of it. You don't know, and the willingness to not know is, is really the willingness to have an open mind. Let us see. Maybe you will still be sick at heart when you get up, but you're just seeing, you're discovering without a preconceived outcome on the other end, and, and that's essential for any meeting with anybody or anything. That's very helpful. I want to go back to something that you said in your meeting with Papaji, your teacher, 
that in that experience of being with him and the exchanges that you had, that you met your own death. Mm. Can you uh, give me a little bit more about that? Help me understand what that was like, meeting your own death? Yeah. Well, you know, I really, it seems to me that everything we fear is death of some kind. Whether it's the ultimate death of the body or it's the death of health or the death of a relationship or the death of my latest uh, inflated self-definition or the death of our planet. I mean, it's it's the ending and that's what we fear. And when I met Papaji, he really invited me to let everything die, which was really an invitation to let my identity die. Now, we, we fear that if our identity dies, who we are is no longer here. Because that's true, that if our, when our identity dies, who we think we are <laughs> is realized to not be here. That it is just um, an illusion, that it's held together by, by thought energy, and it's powerful, and it's a lens for viewing the world, and there's really nothing even wrong with it. It's just not the truth of who one is. And so to me, death is really essential to discover what's unaffected in the death of who you are. So in my case of meeting the death of this relationship and the death of my illusion of how the relationship was going, I was actually forced into a real moment of fighting that, not wanting that to happen, and despairing over the reality of that, that it had happened, and then surrendering to that, that it was over. And in that moment of surrender, there was just this lightness of being, this this freedom. And that's what I had experienced with Papaji. It's not a moment that can be really remembered, but it's a moment that uh, when life presents you with particular circumstances, you can discover, you can can, um, stop generating the story of the past and stop generating the outcome for the future and in that moment there's just lightness there's beauty with no notion of you as separate from that and and no notion of you as as anything other than that one of the things that's curious for me and i'd love to know what your take on this is which is you know you and and eli both have experienced in your life these dramatic spiritual awakenings. And Eli wrote a book on sudden awakening, and we're hearing a little bit about your own experiences with Papaji. And yet, after these experiences of awakening, events happened in your life where there was clearly at least some level of um, not truth-telling or not paying attention, or, you know, you could go on and on. Not that the the details matter, but something that someone from the outside will say, well, that doesn't look very enlightened, or something like that. (laughs) So how do you understand that? Like, what is awakening if even after awakening, uh, such kind of ignorance, for lack of a better word, um, is prevalent, is there? Well, you know, Papaji said vigilance is necessary until our last breath. And uh, because there is a power of mind that is huge. 
And that power is the power to deny or to sublimate or to inflate or to overlook and so many other powers. And, and when uh, Eli and I got back together and actually began to deconstruct our marriage over 30 years, which we had been together many years before we met Papa G and then during Papa G and after Papa G and our teaching and separately and together, we could see that underneath there was this this ground of absolute love and commitment to love and commitment to truth. And on the top, there was also this uh, companionship and, and deep uh, empathy for each other and understanding each other and liking each other. And in the middle of it, there was a very subtle war that had been going on that had been started really at the initiation of our relationship back in the 70s. And that war, because we were ignorant of it, even though when we began to deconstruct it and look at it, I saw there were signs of it all the time, but I had I had rationalized it. I, you know, I thought, this is just the way he is, this is just the way it is. And the truth is, I was deeply fulfilled in my life. So it didn't matter to me that there were rough edges and I overlooked them, and they began to fester. And, and so in this middle area, the area of relationship, I would say, the area of the world, we weren't enlightened. No, we were in, enlightened in the profound, most profound and deep way. We were both fulfilled, and yet there was a way that had not risen to the surface to be met, and that's what had to be seen. We had both individually and together prayed for anything that was left to to come forward and it did it came forward it hit us in the head to get our attention and it wasn't good news but it is good news that at least the invitation was answered and so when you say how to understand that i would say that i understand it that awakening is endless and uh, i'm not particularly psychologically oriented, but in the willingness to to tell the truth and then finally to tell the truth where you're lying or have been lying, there is a deeper and deeper clearing out of, of, of the lies, whether subtle or gross or ignored or denied. And I had done that with so many aspects of my life, but I hadn't done it with my relationship. I had made a, a truth with my relationship because it, I was happy in my life. I didn't need my relationship to give me anything. But there, that relationship was still, uh, it, was, it was flawed in certain ways that needed to be exposed. I mean, I can't say I'm thrilled that they were publicly exposed, but that was part of it too because there was a public persona that also had to be uh, to be met, and so I had to meet within myself a kind of public humiliation and disgrace and and hatred from people and, and lies that people would say about me. And so, to meet that uh, was actually deeply strengthening. And so, I, I would never wish it on anyone, and I wouldn't. <laughs> I don't think it was a good thing. It's like cancer or something. It's You don't need that to wake up to the preciousness of life. But when it comes, you do wake up even more deeply 
to the preciousness of life and as well as the possibility of uh, mind and thoughts to co-opt and and twist understanding so that my fulfillment that was true and hasn't shifted at all was a way that I actually used to not look at what what was not working in my personal life and I my teacher didn't ask me to be a sadhu or to be on a mountain he he pushed me back into the world and I'm to live a regular life as a person to do my own grocery shopping to make my bed to you know to walk in down the street by myself and so in that I so many aspects of my life have come up to be examined examined first perhaps cognitively with the thinking mind but then finally examined by what I mean an inquiry or a meeting which is simply opening to it and I would say with myself and with most people I, I meet it's really some form of self-hatred that we're we're running from some form of uh, the sense that at the core we are worthless and unlovable and so you know when this marriage crisis happened there that was waiting for me I had messed up my marriage somehow because I didn't believe that this happened in a vacuum I knew that uh, I was part of it in some way and for me I had to be willing to discover how I was and what deals I had made with myself to overlook this and so it's endless and vigilance is necessary until the last breath this idea that awakening is endless not all spiritual teachers who talk about spiritual awakening or, or enlightenment, mm-hmm. it's described as sort of there was the before and there was the after. And, you know, even in your story with Papaji and meeting your own death, it seems like there was a kind of before and after, but then there's after the after and after the after and after the after. Or I'm wondering what you might have to say about that, that there was some kind of fundamental change but yet it's an ongoing process at the same time? Yes, I think that's really well said. You know, we think it's one of the other, but it's a whole, and so it's both. And I'm sure most of us can look in our lives and see that there have been, at certain points, certain crossroads, there have been fundamental shifts in our lives. And when I met Papaji, that was the most fundamental shift that has ever occurred to me. And it turned everything right side up. And then there was more. There is more. Uh, I know someone asked me a couple of years after I was teaching, are you fully realized? And I said, well, I haven't found the end of realization. So I would have to say there's always room for more. And and really, I like the way you said it. It's, it's both. It's a fundamental shift and it's a before and an after and then there's an after and an after and an after and even I've heard that um, Jean Dunn who did some who was with Nisargadatta and did some translations for him said that on his deathbed he was saying forget those books I wrote (laughs) they're nothing I've really discovered it now (laughs) because our discoveries our enlightenments our experiences are just so profound at the moment and then the next discovery actually makes that discovery seem more superficial because there is an endless depth and that's really good news actually (laughs) 
It's startling news. Uh, for many years after Papaji, I didn't have this sense of my myself as a person. I there was no one here, and then I had the the, the sense of reincarnating into this body as a as a wife. And part of this crisis was, it seems to me, part of that reincarnation. To see how is it that a wife and a mother and a woman and an aging woman, even though I don't even identify myself as a woman. I am in a woman's body. I am living that life. And so to find what's true in the midst of that is the after and the after and the after. I want to try a, a kind of working uh, investigation on you and see what you have to say about this, Gangaji, which is, as we've been talking in this conversation about emotions and all of these various emotions that come up and how to work with them and meet them. It seems to me more and more that from spiritual practice and from the spiritual life, the ability to be an intelligently emotional being, a fluid emotional being, so one of the greatest capacities that can come, and that if that's not there, then I kind of wonder what's happening with the person's spiritual practice. And I kind of, I guess, related to this is it seems to me that in our culture, even people who are profound spiritual practitioners, there's a lot of confusion about emotion. Mm -hmm. I guess that's what I've been observing. And then I've been observing that other people seem to really have a fluidity or facility with working with their emotions, and that th that's, there are only a few people, actually, that seem to fit that category. So I'm just curious what you have to say about this. Well, I believe there are different points of view. I mean, I've heard uh, certain teachers say they no longer have emotions. <laughs> And I have to assume that that's legitimate, if that's true, and and there's room for that. I don't presume that there's room for that, but anyway. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, as a working presumption, I would make that I would presume that that's okay. Fine. That person doesn't have emotions, and it's not my experience, but I know that uh, there are realms of experience maybe I haven't touched on. So I know for myself there are emotions present. And I also know for myself there's no problem with that, that they don't have to change, they don't have to go away, they don't have to transform, and that I have the capacity to actually meet them as they are without judgment, without the need for them to change. And in that, there is a discovery of this beautiful word you just used, of the natural fluidity of all phenomena. And then emotions are just more phenomena. I've used the analogy of weather before, and they are like that. They are. They can be huge, or they can be calm and sublime, and and they are associated with certain events in our past and certain events that occur to us. But but they are moving, and they're moving in the field of of what is always here. And so we can, from my point of view, I say allow everything since everything is here and then discover what's in the core of everything and then the emotions no longer have the power to tyrannize us that can make us very uncomfortable but they're not in charge then and they can still be in charge if we are fighting them and denying them and dissociating from them because they are still the object but if they are just this fluid movement of sometimes pleasant, sometimes ecstatic, sometimes nothing much, sometimes horrific, 
then it is part of the mystery and wonder of our lives as incarnate beings. Mm -hmm. Now, I want to ask you a question about uh, the theme, or one of the themes, of a new book that I know that you're working on. The subtitle, at least, of the manuscript is Uncovering the Truth in Your Life Story. And this was very curious to me because, of course, I've heard you and other quote-unquote non-dual teachers talk a lot about, you know, drop your story, there's no need for your story, your story is just your thoughts about what's happening, just drop your story. And now we're finding the, the truth in our life story. Yes, that was fun. <laughs> yes, I, I really... Uh, this book just is a, just a coming out of me, and I realized over these 20 years of speaking to people how there's been sort of an institutionalization of this drop your story and for me that was the most profound thing Papaji said and in saying it I realized what was absolutely true and alive and free of my story that is myself but if we then make an institution of that it becomes deadened and so I'm living a story. We're all living stories. As human beings, that's the way we communicate. That's the way we we pass on knowledge, and that's our experience. And the planet has a story. The cosmos has a story. And in the core of each aspect, each minute aspect, is is the essence that the story comes from. And so in the midst of our story, if we stop telling the story, just in the midst of it, we discover the essence. And then the story itself actually contributes to, to that discovery. And so what I, my intention with this book is that it, it supports the dismantling of this institution of drop your story and have that be an aliveness that in the midst of your story, you stop for a moment and you're still and you experience what the emotions that your story have, gen, have generated and you you experience what's present as a result of your story and then discover where that takes you if you if you meet it because we're back to meeting again of course now you use this phrase in the manuscript that we can see our life as a teaching story mm-hmm. so how do i do that how do i see my life as a teaching story well you take it where it is you know without first of all without wanting it to be different or Maybe even, you don't even have to do that. So even if the wanting it to be different, then that's a part of your story. But you enter it uh, objectively. It's, I think earlier I said you overhear yourself. In this sense, you, uh, you detach enough that you see you have perspective on your life story. And you, you see what is it teaching. Is it teaching yearning for truth or is it teaching denial of truth or i mean i know everyone listening to this is has a story of searching for truth and that's a beautiful story and then if you're willing to look at that story you can see at the very beginning of the arising of the search for truth that was actually the result of truth the truth was here at the beginning and then the the story itself can show you in its different aspects uh, the different faces of truth or the different opportunities in that moment to realize truth and even how you have realized truth and either perhaps as we habitually do categorize that or 
deny that or trivialize that in some sense, but to be willing to incorporate that into the sutra of your life or the, the scripture of your life, then the teaching is here. Life is the teacher. And with human beings, with our capability for language and storytelling, it, it teaches through story. But we have to be willing to hear and receive it. Well, how do I relate usefully and intelligently to my life story without falling into a bunch of abstraction and imagination and just kind of, you know, living in storyland, which is what you previously (laughs) advised against? Well, it's really how do you fall into the abstraction and and the... uh, the distancing and it, it, what are the tools for for separation? You know, if the story is intense, uh, usually we want to escape it. We want to get away from it. And that's natural. That's human. So that doesn't have to be made wrong. But there's a possibility of actually not escaping, at least for a moment. It may be even appropriate to escape, to change your life story, to leave your life story. But for a moment, to not escape, to simply open to the the totality that is present. There's a possibility then to directly experience what's at the core of every moment of your story. However it changes, negative or positive, there's this living presence of silent awareness. And then the story is actually a pointer back to that rather than the way we normally use it, which is a a distraction away from the discomfort or a dramatization of the discomfort. So it's uh, a willingness to use it to point back, to be a pointer of inquiry. Where does it come from? Where does the story start? What's the field it, it grows in? Rather than what are the fruits, what is its origin? Mm-hmm. And of course, you know, if we were to take your story, it, we need specifics, and that's also what I hope for this, uh, these three sessions that we have, that people will participate and this will be concrete and not abstract, so that we will have conversations or dialogues with people so that their particular life story, how is it a teaching story? I mean, I just shared how the spirit painful aspect of my story it was a deep teaching story for me and I would hope that everyone would be willing to share in that way that because it supports us all mm-hmm. you know I notice Gangaji sometimes when you talk and you point to needing an experience or going right to the core of something and it's almost like this explosion happens in me when I'm listening to you. Do you know what I mean? Kind of like a, um, I don't know, like some kind of, yeah, like an explosion. Mm-hmm. You know, And I, I wonder if, if you have any um, reference point for that or if that makes any sense to you. Well, I, I, it sounds very good to me. <laughs> it sounds like that you aren't listening abstractly, that you're actually listening from some deeper part of yourself. And it does explode it's a hard listening then you aren't listening just from your powers of cognition and categorization and understanding you're listening from a deeper place 
And that's the mystery. That's how we can all serve one another in actually not just sharing our stories, but sharing the possibility of the resolution of our stories so that whatever sub-stories appear in the broader story, it's all serving this this whole story of the human species and this story of ourselves on this planet at this time and this crucial time of our very shaky existence. So I, I count that explosion as very good. <laughs> okay. I just have one final question for you, Gangaji. I know 2010 marks the 20th year that you've been teaching. Yes. And I'm curious, when you think of this arc of 20 years, how your teaching is different now than it was when you started. What might be a few different characteristics of how you are as a teacher? Mm, That's interesting. Someone was just speaking to me about hearing some of the early recordings, some of the tapes, and they said my voice was very different, uh, that I was much firmer. (laughs) And uh, my explanation to her was that when I first started teaching, people were saying, who are you? What are your credentials? Who are you to say that? And that there was a way that I I was uh, sort of not forcing myself onto the scene, but but saying I have something very important to say. And there's a way I, I sense that in my voice and in my presentation and my offering, I've really just uh, relaxed more. And Papaji told me that the people who are ready to hear this will hear it in some mysterious resonance. And that that's trustworthy. And I have discovered that more and more over the years. And with that, that I really have nothing to teach. It really is uh, support. There's certainly no dogma to what I have to say and no particular thought form that has to be followed. It's really always an invitation to inquire and discover for yourself. And, And I've discovered in my teaching that that is trustworthy, that people have that capacity. And if they have the interest for it, then it is endless and it is it's such great joy. So I'm attending satsang rather than giving satsang mm-hmm. as we're all attending. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Gangaji, for talking with us today here on Insights at the Edge. Oh, I totally loved it. Wonderful interview. And you were so vulnerable and straightforward and real. I really appreciate oh, well. it. <laughs> what else? Thank you. <laughs> Gangaji is the author of The Sounds True book, The Diamond in Your Pocket, and she'll be hosting a three-part online event where you can call in and ask your questions and dialogue directly with Gangaji. It begins on March 9th, and it's entitled Facing Everything, Meeting Your Life Without Resistance. And the first part is on meeting fear. The second part is on the heart of self-betrayal. And then the third part is on letting the world into your heart. And if our listeners would like more information about Gangaji, they can visit her website at www.gangaji.org. And of course, for the book, The Diamond in Your Pocket, or to sign up for the online event, please visit us at SoundsTrue.com. SoundsTrue.com, many voices, one journey. Gangaji, again, thank you so much.